Okay, I'm going to read a couple of scriptures, and we'll see what God has for us this morning. Okay, this is what it says in 1 Corinthians 7.35. It says, And this I speak for your own profit. So, that's a beautiful start, right? God's speaking to us through his word this morning for our own profit. Not that I may cast a snare upon you, but for that which is comely, which is beautiful and attractive, and that you may attend upon the Lord without distraction. Boy, what a key verse that is for us, huh? But if any man think that he behaves himself uncomely toward his virgin, if she pass the flower of her age and needs so require, let him do what he will. He sins not, let him marry. Now, this, of course, is dealing with, with marriage and marriage even prior to it. But the fact of the matter is, in this sense, in Christ, we are virgins, aren't we? We're without spot. We're without blemish in Song of Solomon 4.7 uh, because Christ, our sacrifice, uh, our Passover, our sacrifice in 1 Corinthians 5 verse 7 is he who fulfilled that wonderful type in Numbers 19 and verse 2. He had no blemish at all. There was no spot in him as he is the sacrifice. Then verse 37 says this, Nevertheless, he that stands steadfast, and that's a key word. We're going to look at key, two key words this morning, distraction and steadfast. Nevertheless, he that stands steadfast in his heart, his mind and emotions, having no necessity, right? When we stand steadfast in, in Christ, we have no necessity, do we? having no necessity, but has power over his own will. Boy, isn't that needed for each and every one of us. Power over his own will and has so decreed in his heart that he will keep his virgin, he does well. So again, these are the, this is talking specifically here about marriage, but we can glean an awful lot, can't we? Because we are Christ's virgin. We are his bride. He's the bridegroom. And then we're going to look at 1 Corinthians, the 15th chapter. 1 Corinthians 15, 51 says this, Behold, I show you a mystery. Again, it's a mystery, not something that's mysterious or would cause uh, superstition. It's not at all. It's a mystery, something that has, that's been in the heart of God through Christ ever since God is. <laughs> But now it's being revealed. And behold, I show you a mystery. We will not all sleep. In other words, those that have passed on and, and their bodies, those that are in Christ, it's their body is sleeping, waiting for the, a, a brand new body. So sleep for us, it's really, it's not that we, that the body in, in terms of us is dead. Of course it is, but it's just sleeping in that sense. We will not all sleep. In other words, not all will die and go home to be with the Lord. There'll be others that won't. But we will all be changed. Look at in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trump, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised incorruptible. This is talking about those, body, those that have gone home to be with the Lord, their spirit and their soul return to God who gave it? Ecclesiastes 12, 6 and 7. And their body returns to the dust. 
But in that sense, it's just resting. It's sleeping in that sense. And uh, we know that in Genesis 3, verse 19. So, and the dead will be raised incorruptible, and we will be changed. For this corruptible must put on incorruption, and this mortal must put on immortality. So when this corruptible will have put on incorruption, and this mortal will have put on immortality, then will be brought to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. And what a beautiful thought that is, isn't it? Death swallowed up in victory. We see that again brought out in Isaiah 25 and verse 8. And in in reality, Revelation 20 verse 14. Death is swallowed up in victory. Then we can make this claim. O death, where is your sting? O grave, where is your victory? Where is it? Where is it? And he here is quoting again Hosea 13 and verse 14. But thanks be to God. Thanks to God, which gave us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. And this is the verse that we want to get to, as we read in 1 Corinthians 7, verse 37. Therefore, in other words, because of all this reality, this incredible, glorious reality, therefore, my beloved brethren, my brethren who are so loved of God, be you steadfast. Be steadfast. Unmovable always abounding in the work of the Lord, for as you know, as much as you know, that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. And I love the way this is brought out. First of all, it says, be you steadfast. That speaks of the individual. God is speaking to each and every single one of us through his word. And he says to us, each of us individually, be steadfast. And what is he saying? Keep on. Keep on. You've been placed in Christ. That's an immovable position. Now keep on being steadfast in that reality in your experience. Keep on. Keep on becoming steadfast. And that speaks of growth. We grow in grace and knowledge in 2 Peter 3. And verse 18. And that is sanctification. Sanctification is the moment that we receive Christ. He set us apart from the old in 2 Corinthians 5, 16 and 17 and set us into the new. That's our position. Now it's to be experienced. And this is what this is saying when it says, you, be steadfast because that's true. It's who you are in Christ. Now keep on. Keep on becoming steadfast. We can. You know why? Because we're kept. We're kept. We have an immovable, unchangeable position in Christ. And in 1 Peter 1, verse 5, we are kept by the power of God. As many times as God has brought this to our remembrance, Christ, in 1 Corinthians 1, and verse 24, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. He's given us power and wisdom based upon our position, the finished work that we have in Christ. So we can keep on now in time in our experience becoming what? More and more steadfast. 
steadfast. That word steadfast is hedroios. Hedroios, it's H-E-D-R-E-I-O-S. Hedroios. Listen to what it means. It means to sit. To sit. Right? Transfer all the weight of irresponsibility on something as you sit. And it supports you. Sit. Sit. It made me think of um, Psalm 46 and verse 10. Be still. Be still. Sit. Be still. And know that I'm God. Rest. Rest in the reality of your position. And when you do, you'll keep on being restful in your experience. And that because instead of, instead of giving in to all the noise of the pit in Psalm 40, verse 2, all that noise, all the accusations, all those fiery missiles in Ephesians 6, 16, all those things, those thought forces that the enemy projects against our faith, all these imaginary lies, what do we do? We can remain steadfast. We can sit and we can rest in his presence in Psalm 16 and verse 11. And that's why Isaiah 30 verse 15, quietness and as a result, confidence will be your strength. Isaiah 32 verse 17, the work of righteousness will be peace. The effect of righteousness, quietness, and assurance forever. Sit, be still, and rest in the accomplishment and quietness of what God has done. And when we sit in his presence, he stills the noise of the pit. All those thought projections and imaginations that come against us resting on our foundation, because that's where we rest. We rest on our foundation. That word also means sedentary. You're just resting. You're sedentary. You're not wasting energy by trying to do or trying to figure things out. You're just resting. You're sedentary. But by implication, this is really what this word means. It means immovable. What does it say? What does it mean? It means to sit in his presence in him who's immovable. Malachi 3.6, I'm the Lord your God. I change not. James 1.17, every good gift and every complete perfect gift comes down from the Father of lights, with whom there's no variableness, not even a shadow of turning. And that's what we have in Christ. It also means that, that, that word hedroios, it means settled. Two times in the Greek, that word means settled. We have a settled assurance. Our position is settled. And now he wants to make that our reality as we grow in grace to become our experience. And as we said before, he and our growth, our experience is to be the measure of our position in Christ. And of course, we're going to grow in that in time, in part, in 1 Corinthians 13, verse 12. We're going to grow in it. But then face to face, and even then still, without interruption or hindrance, we'll grow forever. For all eternity and the reality of what we have in Christ based upon what he's accomplished in his person. It also means steadfast. Again, steadfast. Primarily, 
That word hedroias means what? Seated. Where are we seated? In Ephesians chapter 1, verses 1 through 23. Where are we seated in Ephesians 2, 6? That's our position in Christ. We're seated in him in the heavenlies. Listen, how far is our position in Christ, the heavenlies, how far are the heavens above the earth? Can you measure them? (laughs) Even when you leave the earth's atmosphere of 600 miles, even beyond that, how far are the heavens above the earth? How far is what we have in Christ as a present reality? Is it above anything that can happen to us in time on earth? Boy, he's given us the means and the substance with which we can continue to be steadfast. We're going to be steadfast. We're seated in Ephesians 2, 6, in the heavenlies. Do you remember what it says in Isaiah 55, 8 through 11? My thoughts are not your thoughts, neither my ways your ways. As far as the heavens are above the earth, so far are my thoughts above yours. Thank God. Everything about us is determined by God's thoughts about us in Christ. That is to be he, Christ, is to be the measure of our thinking because it's only God's measure, his only measure. So in, that word in, approximately 86 times or more, that word in, in the book of Ephesians. We can rest in, sit still in, immovable in him who's immovable. And what a beautiful reality that is. So we have this place. Our position is this place. We have this image and we have this identity. And Christ is our identity. He's our place. He's our proper image. And we can remain steadfast in him because is he movable? Does he ever change his mind? He never does. Hebrews 13, verse 8, Jesus Christ the same. Yesterday, your yesterday, my yesterday, today, my present, and tomorrow, my eternal future, he remains the same. And we have that. But it also goes into this reality. It also means moral fixity. Moral, something fixed, something that's immovable and doesn't change. This is to be the spiritual governing force in us to give us what truly and only truly is moral or morals or morality. It's this functioning in Christ. See, there's no definition of moral true moral, outside of Jesus Christ. Now, morality, morals, this is what we want to see this morning. Here is the definition of morality or morals. Here it is. It is the quality of an action which renders it good. Okay, where is only goodness located? It's in Christ. Exodus 30. 4 verse 6, he's describing his very nature, character, and essence. And one of them is goodness. That's why Jesus said in John 6, 63, the flesh profits nothing. But the words that I speak unto you, they are spirit, the spiritual, Holy Spirit, and their life, Christ. And that's why, again, it said, and, and the Holy Spirit had Paul write in Romans 7, 18. He said, I know in me, that is in my flesh, it's not who I am in Christ, but in the flesh dwells what? No good thing. Nothing good 
in the flesh. So proper morality, then, as we understand it, is the quality of an action which renders it good. Right? It is the conformity. Notice that word conformity. And when you see and understand that word conformity, you will need these scriptures to understand it. Romans 8, verse 29. Romans 8, 28 says, All things, how many? All things work together for, for the good. Who's good? Good there is divine good, agathos, the goodness that God is in his very essence, nature, and character. All things work together for the good to them that love God. In other words, what's that? Speaking of, if we love God, what is it? It's our obedience, his love through our obedience returned to him. And that's why only those, all things work together for the good to only those that love God and are the called according to what? Their own purpose? No, God's purpose. For whom he did foreknow. And look at what it says. God foreknew us. Everything about him knowing us, he foreknew, having to do with himself manifested and expressed through Christ. For whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate. He preplanned this reality in eternity for what? For us in time, based upon that eternal life in 1 John 5.11 that we possess, because that life is Christ, to be what? Conformed to the image. Notice that. We're being steadfast in what? A proper image. Remember what we said? A place, an image, an identity, a moral fixity. We are to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. So what we see there, again, is when we understand this conformity, it's Romans 8, verse 29. You know what else it is? It's Romans 12. Watch what this says. With this word conformity, Romans 12, 1 and 2, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service, and be not conformed. See that? Be not. Really, be not. We could even say stop being conformed. Stop this, right? What's, what's the easiest way not, way not to sin by grace? Stop it. <laughs> That's why it says in Isaiah 1 and verse 16, cease to do evil. I can't. Yes, you can. Because sin is in the will. We can make a choice, right? So, and be not conformed to this world, this satanic world system, but be transformed by what? By the renewing of your mind that you may prove. To who? To yourselves. That you may prove. And when you prove it to yourself and it's a reality, you have that light to prove to others. It's not even so much what you would say. It would be just by your very conduct that the world observes. And what? And prove what is that good. Where did the good come from? God's. And acceptable and perfect, which means complete will of God. I don't know. Is that who Christ is? Is he that that's good? Yes. Is he the one that's acceptable? Yes. Are we accepted in him in Ephesians 1, 6 in our position? Yes. 
Is it so in my experience? Is it so in my conduct? And so, what? And the will of God. Who fulfilled the will of God in John 4, verse 34? Who did? Christ did. He fulfilled the will in Psalm 47 and 8. And in Hebrews chapter 10, verses 5 through 10. He did it all. He fulfilled it. And what a beautiful reality it is. So, again, morality or morals, it is the quality of an action which renders it good. It is the conformity of an act, or in other words, the action of God's love and unconditional grace to what? It's the conformity of an act to the divine law. What is the divine law? Well, it certainly isn't the Ten Commandments. Just those Ten Commandments in Exodus 23 to 17. It's the law. It's the spirit of the law of Christ Jesus who's made me free from the law of sin and death in Romans 8, 2 and 3. And in that law, Christ has not only fulfilled the law, which again, those 10 Hebrew words, those 10 commandments that were in Exodus 23 to 17, when Jesus said, love one another as I have loved you, and that way all men will know that you truly are my disciplined learners. In John 13, 34, what was he saying? He was repeating it. Remember in Matthew 22, 37, 38, and 39? You will love the Lord your God with all your heart, your whole nature, and then you'll love your neighbor as yourself. You know who your neighbor is? The person, saved or unsaved, who's the closest to you at the moment. That's what it is. And we're to do good unto them like good's been done unto us, irregardless or irrespective of the fact that they're saved or not. And that's Matthew 7, verse 12. So we can see that that's been fulfilled in us. It is. So again, morals, morality, is the quality of an action which renders it good, it is the conformity of an act or some, some form of action, right, to the divine law. Isn't that something Christ has fulfilled? He fulfilled it all. He fulfilled all of our obedience. Now we submit to it with our free will. And then we enter into our own personal obedience in 2 Corinthians 10, verse 5. So it is the conformity of an act to the divine law or here to the principle of Rectitude, rest. <laughs> when I obey and when I'm steadfast and obedience, and what, what is that? What does that bring me to? I don't know. What's the son doing right now? Is he seated at the right hand of the father? What does that speak of? Rest. Is the father resting in the son of his love in Zephaniah 3 and verse 17? Absolutely. So what is our proper place? Who is our proper place? And what is my true identity, my true image? Rest. Now, this conformity that we're talking about here implies that the act or the action must be performed by a free agent. Okay, is God free? Can any constrict him in any way? He operates in the reality of who he is And he's free. He's absolutely free, meaning you can't mix anything to him. He's complete in himself. He's the free agent. But he sent his son, who could do all of this work because of his person, 
because he was completely free also, free from anything about himself and free in the oneness that he had in his father, in his human, in his humanity, in that obedience. And he had to learn in Hebrews 2, verse 10, in Hebrews 5, verses 8 and 9. He had to learn obedience in his humanity. Why? Well, because as God, who did he have to submit to? Now he's got to learn it. Not through sinning, but through instant obedience. How do we learn it? (laughs) Sometimes it's a much harder road, but we learn it based upon, and we do truly learn it, based upon the truth about who we are in our position in Christ. So it's to be performed. That conformity implies the act must be performed by a free agent. Listen, and from a motive of obedience to God's divine will. Isn't that awesome? So Christ did all of that. He did all of that to his Father, and propitiation in the first part of propitiation, and then he did it to all those who would receive him. And what that means is this. It means that we, in Ephesians 2, 8 through 10, we were saved by grace through faith, through absolute dependence. And even that, it says, is not of ourselves, but is a gift of God, and not of works, lest any man should glory or boast in himself. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God has before ordained in eternity past, but worked out by Christ in his steps for us to walk in. And we see that crystal clear based upon Ephesians 2, 8 through 10, and also brought out in 1 Peter 2, 21, his steps. And that's why in Psalm 37, 23, the steps of a good man, and who's a good man? One who functions in the goodness that's in Christ, are ordained of the Lord. That's why we can be steadfast. Okay? And then, once we do that, once we receive grace, which was by a free agent, we weren't free, and we don't operate in freedom, the freedom of our position, in our experience, until we receive grace. But when we receive it, and we first must receive it passively, we don't do anything to deserve it, but we receive it. And when we do and operate in obedience, then we get into the middle voice. And in grace, the grace is in the passive voice in the Greek. We don't do anything. But once we receive it and begin to walk in steps of obedience to Christ through the power of the Holy Spirit, then that's the middle voice. What's that mean? Now we can even actually participate with him. It's all based on his grace, but that grace goes from being passive, which is phenomenal, but now it goes into us participating with it. That's the middle voice. So again, this is what this is saying. This conformity implies that the act or the action must be performed by a free agent. We know that's Christ first, passively. Then it can be the middle voice in our obedience. And from a motive of obedience to God's divine will. First, Christ did all that. No one helped him. That was between him and the Father. He saved us by that grace. Now we receive that grace and salvation. Then we begin in 2 Peter 3.18 to grow in it. And as we grow in that grace that we didn't deserve, passive voice, we couldn't do anything, we now through our obedience begin to actually participate with Christ. Participate with him in the middle voice. 
What a testimony uh, to ourselves, too. And we can see that. uh, We proved to ourselves when we saw that in Romans 12, 1 and 2. So this is what I explained about morality because there's been some misunderstanding about morality and making something to be that was moral to be just human and any human, even unsaved, or a carnal Christian could still function in morality. No, it's not by its very definition. For us to be spiritual, to receive things of the Spirit of God, and to be spiritual, when I obey through grace in His Word, that enters into and comes out of my behavior as what? Morals. Morality. I no longer determine what good and evil is. Some would say that a man could give his body to be burned. What a great act. And have not what? Love. Have not God. Is it then moral? It's not. This is the strict, and this is why it says it, this is the strict theological, right? Theo, God, expression of the word, logos, or logos, right? This is the strict theological, scriptural sense of morality. And to think otherwise is to think with what? Nonsense, (laughs) We can remain steadfast, having the sense, the proper sense of who we are in Christ. And boy, I love some of these things. And this is what God was telling me in my own life. You keep on. You, you keep on. Yes, things are coming against you. That's right. That's true. But if they, God for you in Romans 8, 31, who can be against you? Look at all the things that can happen. There's there's 12 to 14 different things that can happen. And are we more than conquerors in him that loved us through it all? In Romans 8, verse 37. Read Romans 8, 31 to 39. Based upon Romans 8, 1. There's no condemnation to them that are in Christ. If you can't condemn me, you can't separate me. Can I be separated ever again from my position in Christ. No, sin can't touch that because it can't touch relationship. I was born into a family, had everything to do with what someone else did through grace. That can't be changed. But something can come in and separate me in, in my experience. But it could only be based upon what? A lie, right? So we're going to wrap this up. This is what it says. Keep on becoming unmovable. Keep on. Keep on. Yeah, if you fall, get up. If you fall and you sin, 1 John 1, 9, name it and get back up. Micah 7, 8, rejoice not against me, O my enemy. When I fall, I will arise. And when I sit in darkness, the world will be a light unto me. He'll keep lighting up the reality of who I am. And hopefully, by his grace and and, and faith obedience, I'll get up and continue. And that's what we all need, don't we? We all need this uh, godly encouragement. So keep on becoming unmovable. Keep on, that's what it means, immovable. Keep on being unshaken. Why? Keep on being unshaken. What does that mean? Well, in 1 Peter 4, 12, why do you think it's strange? As, you, as a believer in Christ, why would you think it's strange when you have a fiery trial? <laughs> Did you ever ask God why these things are happening? Did you ever, ever ask him that? Why these particular things are going on in your life? Why is this happening to me? 
You know, this, this, this suffering, when it has nothing to do with the fault of the individual that's in Christ. And when that is, you know what, they, you know what the Bible calls that? The royalty of suffering. When there wasn't sin involved, when there wasn't a bad decision, but these things happened to you. That is actually a badge of one of the highest degrees to be able to suffer with him and suffer since he's not here in place of him. And that goes into Colossians chapter 1 and verse 24 as we uh, revealed the other day. But this is 1 Peter 4, 12, beloved. Notice that. What does that mean to be beloved? That means we are positioned in Christ. It doesn't change. God loves us irrespective of every single thing about us. He loves us first. Beloved, you're loved by God. Think it not strange concerning the fiery trial, which is to what? Tempt you? No. To try, to try you, to purify, in 1 Peter 1, 7, your faith. To bring out the clarity of it, as though some strange thing happened unto you. You don't have to ask. We can know it right here. But, verse 13, but rejoice. Rejoice. Inasmuch as you are partakers of Christ's sufferings. Why do you suffer? Why does the innocent suffer? Why did, God, why did God have to allow his son to suffer excruciating pain and suffering beyond what any human being will ever come close to? Why? Because suffering is the road to glory. Suffering in time, the road to eternal glory, Christ in you, in Colossians 1.27, the hope of glory. So keep on becoming unmovable and unshaken because it's, you have been portioned part of Christ's sufferings. Had he still been here, it would have still continued to be with him. But because you're one with him, because you partake of his divine nature in 2 Peter 1.4, part of partaking of that divine nature here on this earth is partaking of his sufferings because did he not suffer? Boy, it's, it's a privilege actually is what it is. That when his glory will be revealed, you may be glad also with exceeding joy that he even gave you the opportunity and the privilege to suffer righteously. What a, it's a privilege. And something that will go into, as we've said before in Revelations 2.17, that white stone that goes into a character, that stone goes into a character in exchange that Christ gives to that individual a new name, which is the new nature, involving everything they went through with him in time, goes into an eternal fellowship. And what a privilege that is. So rejoice at being partaker of his sufferings, even as much as you rejoice in the fact that you're a partaker of his nature. I loved what one Greek scholar said about this verse. And boy, he said it to me yesterday, like with any of us, when all hell was trying to break loose on my little skull. <laughs> all the lies, all the accusations, all the evil thoughts, simply because Christ is in me and I'm in him. You know what he said? And I love this. I, I wrote it down so big. <laughs> Let the skeptics howl and rage. Whew. Let them. Let them. 
Let the skeptics, and we'll see what those are, let the skeptics howl in rage against us. They did it to Christ. Did it change a single thing about his person or the accomplishment of his work? Nope. Nope. He remained steadfast. He set his face like a flint through the most intense suffering, even on the way to the cross, to suffer unimaginable pain and suffering on the cross, but he set his face like a flint. You'll see that in, in Isaiah 50, verses 6, 7, and 8. You'll see it right there. He did. That's what this suffering is. Undeserved suffering. And what a privilege that is. Let the skeptics howl in rage. Let the enemy come in. And if he can't deceive us, in Revelations 12, 9, he'll howl and rage against us with accusations in Revelations 12, verse 10. But remain steadfast. He's with you. He's with me. He's going to lead us through. And he's going to bring us through because he is our foundation. In Matthew 16, verse 18, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Every force, an evil spirit, every evil demon with under Satan's leadership coming against us, that's what the gates of hell mean. Pouring through against us won't prevail against us because we are immovable in Christ and our position and we're growing in that way in our experience. So let them howl and let them rage. You know, ultimately, Satan, it says, in Revelations 12, verse 12, it says he comes down in great wrath. By the way, we're not there at that point. We've been raptured based upon uh, Revelations 4 and verse 1. We've been raptured. We're off the earth, even though some don't believe it ignorantly or are in a very prideful way. Fact of the matter is, he comes down in great wrath. It says, no, knowing that he has but a short time. You know what that means? He knows the end is coming for him. And he is such a, in such a howling rage, he even turns on those that served him. <laughs> oh boy, what a picture. What a picture. Because it says in James 2, verse 19, even the demons believe and they tremble. They know it's true, but they don't experience it because they won't. And as a result, they shudder and shake. They shudder and shake about it. Let the skeptics howl in rage. Go ahead, let them. Let them. You know, let them do it. Yes, in Daniel 7, verse 25, he speaks great words against the Most High. Did you know that? If, he, if, if you give him a place, he'll, he'll speak, and don't give him a place in Ephesians 4, verse 27. But if we do, he'll speak great words against the Most High. Somehow he has this against you when it's already been dealt with. He speaks great words against the Most High. Why? To wear out who? The saints to wear them down, to cause them to quit based upon a lie. But be steadfast. Continue to be steadfast through it all. Continue. Continue. Yep. Because, because we're to stand still in Exodus 14, verse 13. We're to stand still. And when we do, when we're still, we see our great salvation. We see this great salvation, this great deliverance. And then what? Why? In Exodus 14, verse 14, why? For the battle is the Lord's. 
We don't get into a battle. We remain seated. We sit. We are immovable. The battle is the Lord's, not ours. 1 Samuel 17, verse 47. David defeated the giant. He took a stone, one stone out of a bag of five. One stone. That stone was Christ. It hit him right in the forehead. and Down he went. He cut off his head. That's right. The battle is the Lord's. In Deuteronomy 1, 29 and 30, the battle is the Lord's. We sit immovable and rest in him. That's what we do. And we'll have to get into some of these things, uh, possibly tomorrow. Not possibly. I want to get into these things tomorrow about what it means to have superstition. I, I want to get into definitions of what it means and who a skeptic is versus those that hear the true voice and the true voice is their shepherd. Not only went before us, but goes with us and is leading us to a great face-to-face -face meeting through it all. And finally, there's two lions that are revealed in the scriptures. We'll get into these two lions tomorrow because of time this morning. But I do want to say, and I'm going to repeat some of this in the morning, there's two lions. One of those lions, and I love writing this down. <laughs> Thought came to my mind. One of the lions is Satan in 1 Peter 5, verse 8. He is a roaring lion. Why does he roar? I'm going to tell you why. He's toothless. <laughs> He's got no power. He roars. Christ has defeated him. And in Hebrews 2, 14 and 15, he defeated him in his power. So he can only roar. He's toothless. So he roars. <laughs> He's a big roarer. That's what he does. He tries to devour us, not with power, but with his lies, with his imaginations. That's what he tries. He's toothless, right? That's what he is. And we're going to get into those scriptures tomorrow. I can't wait. If I can wait till tomorrow. The other one. Is Revelation 5, 5, the lion of the tribe of Judah, Christ our lamb. And he's the one who has all power. He has all power. That's what he said in Matthew 28, 18. All power is given unto me. Where? In heaven? Spiritual battle? Angelic conflict? Defeated. And on earth? Yeah, with us. All power is given unto me in heaven and in earth. All power. All power. He's omnipotent. In Revelation 19, verse 6, he has all power. And God has not given us the spirit of fear where we would be shaken and moved. But he's not given us the spirit of fear, but of power <laughs> and love and a very, very sound, disciplined mind that keeps us from being shaken. He has all power. So, Father, thank you, thank you, thank you. And boy, do I want to, by your grace, Father, as you lead, to get into these, these definitions and these truths and also about the royalty of suffering. And thank you, Father, so much for your precious word. 
Thank you for you, Lord, your, your precious. Thank you for giving us your precious son. Thank you for he who is the word. And thank you that we have God, the Holy Spirit. God, the Holy Spirit, our only theologian, our scholar who takes the things of Christ and constantly shows us who we are to keep us going forward and not being shaken. Thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.